If you have a Bible, please turn to Leviticus 23. We're going to start there. We're going to be in a few places, though, so I'm going to give them to you now if you want to either write them down or save those spots for later in the message. But we're also going to be in, we're going to be in Leviticus 23. We'll start there, but then we're going to go to Deuteronomy 26, then Mark 16, then John 20, and we'll finish up in Philippians 3. So Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 26, Mark 16, John 20, and Philippians 3. So it's too many, too many scriptures, Pastor. Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 26, Mark 16, John 20, and Philippians 3. Now, all throughout Passion Week, we've been studying how Jesus made God's people promise that he would set them free from their sin. And and that's the good news. The good news is that we have been set free, we've been rescued, and that through repenting of our sins and trusting in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for us, we are saved. Now, we have been examining how the Old Testament feasts, they point to that gospel truth. The Feast of Unleavened Bread points to Jesus' perfect life. The Feast of Passover points to Jesus' death on the cross. And then this morning, we're going to look at the Feast of First Fruits and how it points to Jesus' resurrection and the new life that is offered to us. So Leviticus 23, we're going to start in verse 9, where it outlines this feast. It says in verse 9, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you be come into the land which I give unto you and shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest unto the priest. And he'll take that sheaf. He's going to wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. On the morrow after, the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer that day when you wave the sheaf a he lamb, a male lamb without blemish of the first year, for a burnt offering unto the Lord, and... The grain offering thereof shall be two-tenth deals of flour mingled with oil, an offering made by fire unto the Lord for a sweet savor, and the drink offering thereof shall be of wine, the fourth part of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor parched corn nor green ears until the selfsame day that you have brought an offering unto your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. So we see the Feast of first fruits here in Leviticus 23, and it has three parts to it. The first part is that it was not to be celebrated until they had conquered the promised land and actually been able to plant and harvest crops. So while Passover and unleavened bread started um, you know, in Egypt, this one wouldn't take place in Egypt. It wouldn't take place in the desert. It wouldn't happen until they came into the land and conquered uh, the Canaanites, and then they had settled the land and planted crops and bring, brought out that first harvest. And Deuteronomy 26 actually talks about that that, that time when you come and what you, how you're going to do this. So we got the general perspective there in Leviticus. We'll return there in a second. But here in Deuteronomy 26, we get the, the personal perspective. Verse 1 of chapter 26 of Deuteronomy. And it shall be when you are come in unto the land which the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance, 
and possess it, and dwell therein, that you shall take of the first of all the fruit of the earth, which you shall bring of your land that the Lord your God gives you, and you shall put it in a basket, and you'll go unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose to place his name there. You're going to go to where God says to put the tabernacle. And you shall go unto the priest that shall be in those days, and say unto him, I got your basket there of your first fruits, first of your harvest, and you're going to say to the priest, I profess this day unto the Lord your God that I am come unto the country which the Lord swear unto our fathers for to give us. And the priest will then take the basket out of your hand, he'll set it down beside the altar of the Lord your God, and you will speak and say, now not to the priest, but before the Lord your God. This is a very personal moment between you and the Lord. You're going to say to the Lord, a Syrian ready to perish was my father. But he went down into Egypt, and he sojourned there with a few, and he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians evil entreated us. They afflicted us, and they laid upon us hard bondage. And when we cried unto the Lord God of our fathers, the Lord heard our voice, and he looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. And the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terribleness or great awesomeness and with signs and with wonders." And he has brought us into this place and given us this land, even a land that flows with milk and honey. And now, behold, again, you're talking to the Lord. Behold, Lord, I have brought the first fruits of the land which you, O Lord, have given me. And then you'll set it before the Lord your God and you'll worship before the Lord your God. So we see that this is a very personal thing. It was a time where you're coming to the Lord, you're going to give the basket to the priest, but then you're going to go before the Lord and you're going to remember where he brought you from. You're going to remember where you had been and, and you're going to rejoice in where God has now brought you. You're going to tell the Lord, Lord, I was here, this was our past, but you brought us out of that slavery and you brought us here and this basket is evidence of that fact. But that wasn't it. Verse 11. It says, and you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given unto you and unto your house, you and the Levite and the stranger that is among you. So after you tell the Lord, Lord, I, I don't want to forget where I came from. I don't want to forget how bad it was. I don't want to forget what you did to bring us here. And Lord, as I bring this here to you and I, I worship you for that, I also want to rejoice. I want to celebrate the fact that we're here now. Now I'm in the land. Now I'm blessed and I want to celebrate with everyone around me. And so when you have made an end of, verse 12, tithing all the tithes of your increase the third year, which is the year of tithing, and you have given it unto the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that they may eat within the gate, your gates and be filled, then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have brought away the hallowed things out of my house, and also have given them unto the Levite, unto the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow, according to all the commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, neither have I forgotten them. I have not eaten thereof in my mourning, neither have I taken away aught thereof for any unclean use, nor given aught thereof for the dead. But I have hearkened to the voice of the Lord my God and have done according to all that you have commanded me. In other words, Lord, I set this first part of my harvest apart and I haven't used it for anything else. I didn't come home from work and it was a rough day at work and go, you know, yeah, anybody here like a, an emotional eater? You don't need to raise your hand to confess that. <laughs> I have discovered that when I've had a rough day, ice cream is, is my fix. Wow, no amen. Someone said amen in the first service. We're like, hallelujah, yes, you know. I, I have found that to be the case. When it's a bad day, um, oh, now I forgot the name of the place. Yeah, all those places. <laughs> yeah, you got it. 
you, you get me. You're my people. <laughs> Coldstone Creamery is my particular favorite. So anyway, I didn't do that is what he's saying. I, I didn't have a bad day and in my morning, I didn't go eat the food that I set apart for you. I didn't use it for any regular purpose. It wasn't like, ah, we're tired. We want to make dinner tonight. We'll just eat this. No, I set it apart for you. It was to be given to your people, you know, those who are in need, to those who serve in the, t- in the tabernacle and, and given to you, Lord. I've been obedient. Verse 15, look down now from your holy habitation, from heaven, and bless your people Israel and the land which you have given to us as you swore unto our fathers a land that flows with milk and honey. In other words, it wasn't just a time of remembering where you've been and rejoicing what God has now done in your life, but it was also a time of declaring your obedience to God moving forward. That you're, that you're in the land now and you want to follow him, you want to obey him, and, and it's a petition for his continued blessing moving forward. In, in other words, the Feast of first fruits it had a completed, like an accomplished component. Something had been done that we're remembering and we're rejoicing in, but it also had like a moving forward, a, a still living component to it. File that away because that will become important later on. Now, in addition to bringing your first fruits. Back in Leviticus 23, it mentioned that they needed to bring three other offerings. They needed to bring a burnt offering, a grain offering, and a drink offering. The burnt offering and the drink offering are are very similar. The burnt offering was given to dedicate your entire life to the Lord. You would bring that offering and say, Lord, I just want to give you everything, my whole life. And so the idea was is no one would eat any of it. It would all burn on the altar. God's the only one who got to eat it. And then the grain offering was when you wanted to dedicate a specific time of service to the Lord. Lord, for the next three months, I just want to serve you in this capacity. And then you would bring this grain offering to the Lord. And so the drink offering, same as the burnt offering, surrender and service. And so again, we see this dual function. Your first fruits were an accomplished component and and, and the burnt and the grain offerings were, well, the how I'm going to live moving forward component. I want to follow you. I want to obey you. I want to serve you, Lord. And then lastly, the third part of the feast is you get your first fruits you got to bring. You secondly, got to bring these other offerings. And then thirdly, you are not allowed to partake of your harvest until you'd first given God the first fruits. Okay? Now, how does this point to Jesus? Well, on the day after the Sabbath, just like this feast is celebrated the day after the Sabbath, Jesus gloriously rose from the dead the first day of the week the day that we're gathered here today. And you know what's interesting? He even gave a wave offering uh, before he himself partook of his resurrection. The Bible says in, in Matthew chapter 27, verses 52 and 53, that when he cried out with a loud voice and he gave up the ghost, it says that the graves in Jerusalem were opened, that many of the Old Testament saints walked among in the city of Jerusalem. That was his wave offering that he's saying, Lord, here's the first part. And then, of course, three days later, he rose from the dead, becoming the first fruits. In 1 Corinthians 15, 19 through 23, uh, I'm just going to read it real quick. But it, it mentions there in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 19, now is Christ raised from the dead. Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. And so Jesus' his life was the burnt offering, the grain offering, his fully yielded life, a life of service to his Father, was accepted by 
the Lord. And so now he can partake of his harvest, and he will do that when he returns to resurrect and gather his bride unto him and to bring them unto heaven, right? He is the first fruits, and then they that are alive when he returns, those that when he returns will be the rest, all right? Now, while that resurrection is the blessed hope for every Christian, Jesus' resurrection, however, is more than just a first fruit for that future event. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Resurrection isn't just a future hope of something that's going to happen in the future. That is a great hope. But it's a living hope. It's a present hope. There is an accomplished component, but there's also a moving forward now component, just as there are two components to the feast. Jesus fulfilled both the accomplished component and he is fulfilling the life going forward component through his resurrection. Jesus hinted at this. If you remember in, and when he came and Lazarus had died and Martha came out and said, you know, Lord, if, if you'd been here, my brother would still be alive. He wouldn't have died. And what did Jesus say unto her? Your brother will rise again. And she said, you could see it in her answer. I know that. I, I've been taught that my whole life. I get that. I know he's going to rise again. But what do I do now? What do I do until that day, Jesus? What about this pain? Where do I go from here? He's not here anymore. And Jesus uttered that audacious, ridiculous, awesome truth to her, a truth that no one else could offer anybody. He said, I am the resurrection and the life, Martha. He who believes in me, though he is dead, yet shall he live. He that believes in me shall never die. Martha, it's not just your brother who's, who's not experiencing death right now. You can experience life right now. I'm the resurrection and the life. It's not just a future thing. The fact when I said that, it's a now thing, Martha. Martha, I'm not talking about your brother now. Now I'm talking to you. Resurrection is only necessary because of death. But death doesn't just affect our bodies at the end of our lives. Because we have a sin nature, death begins to affect our bodies the moment we're born. And so the idea here is he's the resurrection and the life. Jesus gives life, but that life is not just in a new body at some point in the future. He gives a new life the moment he gives us new life the moment we place our trust in him. Yes, we have a future resurrection waiting for us, and that's awesome. But because he is the resurrection and the life, there is a present new life as well. A power of the resurrection that lives in us right now because he's alive and here right now. And that truth wasn't something that Jesus just only offered to Martha because she was hurting in that moment. Well, let me cheer her up a little bit. <laughs> he offered it to all of his disciples when he rose from the dead. I want to look at two who were dramatically impacted in that moment, by his resurrection. Turn to Mark chapter 16. Mark 16. 
Think about what it was like to be Peter for those three days. I mean, you had failed Jesus in your most important moment. I mean, you told him, though all these other losers will forsake you, I won't. I can believe that. I can believe John would do it. I, I've known him. I've watched him the last three years. I, I can see how he'd do it. Not me, Jesus. I am not only willing to, to, to go with you and not to forsake you, I'm willing to die for you. And the best you could do in the moment you had to rescue Jesus from the Roman soldiers is lop off an ear. And then when they arrested your Savior, your Lord, your Master, your Teacher, you fled. And then you followed at a distance. And then when confronted by those who were no threat to you, you not only denied him three times, but you called curses from God down upon you. God, strike me dead right now if I even know the man. Peter might be able to somehow comprehend that God could forgive him. But in his mind, his life is done. I mean, there's no moving forward until Mark 16. Verse 1, and when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, they had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him, Jesus. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun, and they said unto themselves, amongst themselves, who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? But when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he said unto them, Don't be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. You don't believe me? Look, he's not here. He is risen. But, Go your way. Tell his disciples, and then here it is. And Peter, that he goes before you into Galilee. There shall you see him as he said unto you. It's interesting. Most people believe that Mark is Peter's gospel, um, that he's the one. There's things here that are written that are unique to Peter. And Peter mentions... You know, as all the other guys are writing their gospel, he's like, yeah, y'all left out an important part. He mentioned me by name. Go and tell his disciples. And by the way, make sure you tell Peter. Peter, I'm not dead. My father's accepted my sacrifice for your sin, for your denial of me, for your failure. I'm alive. And guess what? Because I'm alive, you will live too. Your life isn't over, Peter. It's just going to begin. And you know what? I know that that's what Jesus meant because that's what Jesus told Peter and the others just a few nights before. In John 14, 19, Jesus said to them, yet a little while and the world sees me no more. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna go into the grave. But you see me and because I live, you shall live also. He didn't say because I live, someday you'll live in heaven. He said because I live, you shall also live right now in just a few days. 
Peter, you're going to think your life is over. But ladies, make sure you tell Peter his life's not over. It's just beginning. Turn to John 20 with me. Look at another disciple who had had an immediate change in their life, immediate impact. Think about what it was like to be Mary Magdalene. Jesus had rescued you from a horrible life of demonic possession. Everything before that had been awful and everything after that had been wonderful. And now the one who had rescued you, who had given you meaning to go forward, is gone. And despite the announcement from the angels that we read about in Mark chapter 16, they're commanded to go back and tell the disciples, Mary doesn't go. She can't. She's stuck. She's losing it. She can't even say goodbye like she wanted to to Jesus. She can't even take the next step in life. Look in verse 11 of John chapter 20. It says, but Mary stood without at the tomb weeping. The other girls go back. They tell Peter and John. They come in. They duck their head in. They notice Jesus isn't there. The whole time, Mary's just sitting there, not moving. She stood outside the tomb weeping. She's not walking around. She's literally stuck. Her life has come to a standstill. She can't take the next step. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And seeing two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain, they said unto her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord. And I know not where they have laid him. He was dead, but he was still her Lord, still her teacher, her rabbi, her friend. Where does she go from here? He's gone. I don't know where he is. Since the day he rescued me from those demons, all I've done is follow him around. What do I have to go back to now? Well, Verse 14, and when she had said thus, she turned herself back. She doesn't move again. She just turns around. She looked in, bent down, looked in. Now she turns back around. And when she does, she saw Jesus standing, but she knew not that it was Jesus. She was such a mess, weeping, emotionally a wreck. Didn't even realize it was Jesus. Jesus said unto her, woman, same question. Why do you weep? Who are you looking for? Same question. Same question. Now she, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if you have carried him from here, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She's stuck. But then the risen Savior said unto her, the one who's alive right in front of her, said, Mary. The name that she had heard time and time again And she turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. And we only know what she did next because of what Jesus says. And Jesus said unto her, touch me not. Now, we read that in the King James, and you think that sounds like like he's some kind of like alien figure, like don't touch me, I'll electrocute you or something, you know? No, no, no. The, The phrase just means let me go. Stop clinging to me. I'm not yet ascended to my father, you know? I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. You don't have to hold so tightly to me, Mary. 
I need you to do something. I need you to move forward. I need you to go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. And now, now do you see how quick the risen Lord has changed her life? Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, that he had spoken these things unto her. She goes from standing in one spot for who knows how long to Matthew chapter 28, 8 says, departing quickly with reverence and great joy. She goes from weeping so heavily that she can't see Jesus to wrapping him in such a tight embrace that he has to remind her that she'll never lose him again because he's alive. Jesus' resurrection didn't just make a difference eternally for the disciples. It made a difference right then and there. If you're like me, you might be thinking, well, of course it did. Jesus is, I mean, they could see him. He's alive. How could that not make a difference? I haven't seen him alive. I haven't seen the risen Lord like they did. How does that fit for me? Well, Paul did see the risen Lord. However, he prayed something for those who had not seen the risen Lord. In Ephesians 1, verses 19 and 20, it's a part of a beautiful prayer where Paul says, you know, listen, I'm so excited about the Lord's doing in your life there, all you Ephesian Christians, and I pray this for you all the time. It's a good prayer to pray. I pray this for our church, for all you guys every day. And one component of that prayer is he, he prays in verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 1. He says that they would know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe. But what kind of power is it? according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Why would Paul be praying for this power that was working in Christ when God raised him from the dead, that they would experience that in their own lives? Well, Romans chapter 8, 11 explains. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11, it tells us that the, if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which happened for if you're a Christian today, the Spirit of the, of the Lord dwells in you. So if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, then He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken, make alive your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwells in you. Notice He doesn't say your immortal bodies. He, he doesn't say that there's going to be a time, although this is true, there's going to be a time when we're going to get a new body and that God's going to rid us of the presence of sin. That is true. But what he's talking about here is that the risen Lord, the same power that was working in Christ, his, that we have access to that, and it makes our mortal bodies alive. It does something in this body, the one we're in right now. And so Paul says in Romans 8, 12, and 13, therefore, brethren, because of this power working in us, the risen, power of the risen Christ, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. I don't have to do what my flesh says. For if you live after the flesh, you'll die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. There is something better, an abundant life, something better that Jesus promises to us now, not just in the future. And even though Paul had seen the risen Lord, he didn't just pray that we would experience that, those who had not, but he prayed, he sought to experience that power in his own life, and it was one of his main goals. And so turn to Philippians 3 with me, and I'm going to share one more verse at the end of the message, but this will be our final text this morning, Philippians 3, verses 7 through 14. 
Now, Paul says in verse 7 of Philippians 3, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Everything he had accomplished, everything he had achieved, everything he had added to his life, he says, I count, the way I, I count them out is just, it's all, it's all negative. It's all a loss. Like, I, I, I truly haven't gained anything in his mind. It's what he's thinking because of Christ. Verse 8. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. So Paul says, I counted every other accomplishment in my life loss so I could pursue something else. The excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. All those things I accomplished, I achieved, all that status in the Jewish community, it's gone now. And I do count them, but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that righteousness, that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And then verse 10, it says, that I may know him, but literally in the Greek it means to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. What is Paul talking about here? How how do you attain the resurrection of the dead in this life? Don't you have to be dead to attain to the resurrection of the dead? How can I pursue something here that causes me to attain the resurrection of the dead? I don't think Paul had a death wish. I don't think that's his point. His goal is the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, his Lord. Paul's goal is one that surpasses. That's what excellency means. It surpasses the value of any other goal. Knowing Jesus surpasses the value of any other goal. But he says knowing Jesus, to know him, it comes, to knowing Christ better comes alongside knowing something else. To know him and the power of his resurrection. So there's a knowledge of the power of his resurrection he wants to, to understand, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Time does not suffice us this morning to get into the fellowship of his sufferings part. That's a whole other sermon. But what is this power of his resurrection that Paul also wants to know? The word there, know, it refers to experiential knowledge. So it's, it's not an intellectual piece of information to learn. I mean, if we came here this morning and you walked away going, oh, wow, I think I understand the resurrection better. That's great. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. The resurrection has an important practical and personal meaning. In the same way that there was an important personal and practical part of the Feast of First Fruits when you would come and bring your basket and then you would give that to the priest and then it'd just be you and the Lord. What is the power of his resurrection? The word power there means the ability to perform a function. It's not power that we just kind of go, oh, I've got power, you know? Look at my power, you know? That's not what he's referring to here. There is some ability to perform some function that the resurrection wants to work in our lives, that Christ through his resurrection wants to work in our lives right now. Paul explains what it is, being made conformable unto his death. Being made conformable unto his death. The word to be made conformable means becoming day by day more similar to something. 
how do I become day by day more similar to the crucifixion? Paul isn't talking about actual crucifixion. If that's the case, well, he certainly failed in his task. He never attained what he set out to do because Paul was beheaded. He wasn't crucified. So that's certainly not what Paul is. He doesn't have a death wish. He's not saying, well, I need to go to a cross. That's the only way I can really know Jesus. That's not what he's saying. Paul is saying that the resurrection gives us the ability to become more like Jesus. Jesus who said to us, Therefore, if any man wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. A daily thing. A daily letting him get a deeper hold of us. Vincent, the great Greek scholar, said this. This is a conformity to the spirit and temper, the meekness and submissiveness of Christ. It's a conformity to his unselfish love and devotion to his anguish over human sin. This is exactly what Paul said when he described baptism in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. He says, therefore, we have been buried with baptism, right? Buried with Christ in baptism in the likeness of his death. But it doesn't stop there. We don't, when we baptize people, we don't just put them under the water and hold them there. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life, a new kind of life, a different way of living. This new way of living that Paul longed for and that is available to all of us, it's only possible. Here's the thing. If you don't get anything this morning, guys, get this. It is only possible because Jesus is really and truly alive and working in our lives right now. Do you believe that? (laughs) Good. (laughs) Because if we don't, we of all men are most miserable. This whole, if we're just going to do the Christian thing because I think, well, you know, I was raised that way or, or you know, religion's important or, you know, you know uh, church kind of has, has a stabilizing influence in my life. If that's all it is, then we of all people are most miserable. Let us eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we're dead. And I don't think he just meant that we're going to die someday. I think what he's saying there is that life has no purpose and meaning. Do you believe that he's alive and here right now? And are you seeking to know this living Savior who wants to work the power of his new life in you? That's what resurrection's about. That's what Easter's about. This is why Paul was still pursuing, because he tells us he had not reached it yet. Verse 12 of Philippians 3, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, I'm not there yet, but I follow after, I still pursue if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Jesus laid hold of me for a purpose. And it wasn't just to tell me, well, I'm glad you're saved. Hang on till you get to heaven, man, because it's going to be a doozy. He said, I grabbed hold of your life to do something in you, to transform you, to be more like me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are in front, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. 
The purpose of this sermon is not to beat you up because you're, you're not where you should be this morning. The purpose of this sermon is to remind you that we serve a living Savior, to remind you that we all have something awesome to pursue, and to remind you that you have a high calling that surpasses any other thing a person can pursue. To encourage you to reach forth and to press toward. The word reach forth there, it's interesting, it's a word that's used for a foot race where the arms and the legs are pumping forward, pulling, you know, when, when you're running, this arm's here because, you know, it's pulling the next one, the next leg forward, because if the next one's not coming, you're going to sprawl on the ground. It's, it's this forward motion that everything is pulling it in this direction as the eyes are looking ahead to the finish line. The word to press toward, it means to strive energetically toward some purpose. So what's the point? What's the purpose? Certainly to know him. But I want to leave you with James 1, 17 and 18 this morning. James 1, 17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, and it comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. I want you to know this morning that the God in heaven who is waiting at the finish line, the Savior who is waiting at the finish line, the living Savior, he is never going to turn from the side. He's not going to get distracted by squirrels. He's never, there's never going to be anything that's going to grab his attention that's going to cause him to take his eyes off you. He is right there looking at you saying, look at me, keep running, keep coming. But there's more than that. Verse 18. Of his own will he begat us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. There it is again, first fruits of his creatures, of his creations. Here's the point. We have been given a precious gift Jesus, right? We've been given an amazing gift. And Jesus has rescued us to finish the race that he set in front of us. But the purpose isn't just for us to finish. In running our race well, in running it right, we're to be the first fruits of others who come so that we can be shouting to them, come this way. Look, I know the way to go. The finish line is this way. Trust me, I'm close. Jesus is right there and he's waiting for you with open arms. It's to run in such a way that we are getting closer to Jesus so that when people look at our lives, they get a better glimpse of him. That we are a first fruits of others that the Lord's bringing into the kingdom. Let's purpose this Resurrection Sunday to be those who are getting closer to the finish line, who are pumping our arms and legs in the right direction so that others might get a better look at Jesus when they see us, amen? That's the impact the resurrection had on Peter and Mary starting right that day. And that's the impact it's meant to have on us. Well, we're going to pray, and the kids are going to come up, and they're going to sing, but after they're done singing, I'm going to give you an opportunity. If you have never repented of your sins and put your trust in Christ, if you have never believed on the gospel, you never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. And, and, if, and if you're here this morning, you say, well, I want to get back on the track. I want to get back moving forward. I want, I want my life to be one that's pursuing Christ and that is shouting to others, he is here, he is, he, is, he is risen, he's alive. Look at me, you'll get a better glimpse of him. We're gonna give you an opportunity to be prayed for in that way as well. So Lord, we now dedicate this time to you as the kids are gonna come up to sing. We want this rich word, this rich truth of the power of the resurrection. We want it to sink into our hearts.
or to not just be an intellectual idea, but like your servant Paul, that we would say, this is our goal. We're reaching forth. We're pressing toward our high pri- the prize of our high calling to know him, to be made conformable of his death, to his death through his resurrection power. Lord, for every person that's saying that now, will you work in their hearts, Lord, and change them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.